Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. Good afternoon, then, David. Yes, it is 12:04. If you would like to be specific, it's morning someplace. True. And we also welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website. For those in-house, we would ask that courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we will, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for your further reference. Leading our discussion is David Burton, Senior Fellow in Economic Policy in our Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. He, of course, focuses on tax matters, securities law, entitlements and regulatory, as well as administrative law issues. Before joining us here at Heritage, he was general counsel at the National Small Business Association. He has also served as chief financial officer and general counsel of the Alliance for Retirement Prosperity, was a partner in the Argus Group, and served in more other capacities, including manager of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Tax Policy Center. Uh, Please join me in welcoming David Burton. David? Thank you, John. Thanks for coming. Uh, our event's called Crowdfunding So Far and Necessary Reforms. Uh, the Jobs Act created, or Title III of the Jobs Act, uh, created a, an exemption for crowdfunding. And it's an exemption that allows entrepreneurs uh, originally to raise a million, now a million and 70,000 from a large number of small investors using the internet. Uh, primarily funding portals, but also in principle broker dealers. The final SEC rule implementing crowdfunding was effective May 16th, 2016. So we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of Title III crowdfunding. There are currently 38 crowdfunding portals, assuming I counted correctly, uh, registered with uh, FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Association that regulates both broker-dealers and crowdfunding portals. Private sources report that in 2016, about 28 million was raised using Title III crowdfunding, uh, 49 million in 2017, and approximately, uh, well, a little bit over 100, 112 million, I think, uh, from inception to date. The latest SEC data is from February 28th of 2017. So it's quite old, which seems to be commonplace. The SEC reported that between May 16th of 2016 and the end of that year that approximately 10 million was raised in 33 offerings. And that's the most recent official SEC data to my knowledge. 
Uh, <clears throat> obviously, it's accelerated uh, since that time. But these are relatively small sums compared to other means of raising capital. Uh, Regulation D, which is a safe harbor under the uh, private offering uh, provisions in Section 482, raises about $1.5 trillion a year. Some of that is for large firms, obviously, but uh, a significant portion is for small and medium-sized firms. Uh, the SEC reports that in the first 16 months of Regulation A+, plus 81 offerings seeking about $1.5 billion uh, were used in, re uh, in Regulation A+, plus and qualified by the Commission. Uh, to my knowledge, the SEC has not released any uh, additional data uh, since that was published in December of 2016. But I, I'm pretty sure that based on talking to people that Regulation A-plus has accelerated, so it probably is significantly above that at this point. Uh, our panelists may have some better, more current information. Now, it's been nearly three years since Regulation A-plus was effective in 2015 and two years since Regulation CF. The word crowdfunding originally was meant to be or described Title III crowdfunding. It's sort of broadened. Uh, I think people often use it to to um, to mean Regulation A plus as well. But uh, the focus of our discussion, not exclusively today, will be Regulation CF or Title III. Now, the fact that crowdfunding or Title III crowdfunding as enacted and then implemented by the SEC has not been a roaring success is not a great surprise to me. I'm on record as saying that was likely to be the case. But I'd like to just quote a University of Florida law professor named Stuart Cohen who put it this way. Is there any regulatory burden left unchecked by this supposedly favorable to small business legislation? If so, Congress put icing on the cake by authorizing the SEC to make such other requirements as the commission prescribes for the protection of investors. Opportunity not, but what began as a relatively straightforward approach to assist small business capital formation ended with a regulatory scheme laden with limitations, restrictions, <coughs> obligations, transaction costs, and innumerable liability concerns. And I have to say that I basically agree with Professor Cohn. <clears throat> now, let me quickly discuss some ideas that the panelists may address as well that might make Title III better. Um, of course, some of the panelists may disagree. Um, one thing that could be done is to increase the amount that can be used, uh, raised using Title III. Uh, a common number discussed is $5 million, which would dovetail with some of the other exemptions, uh, but others have, have talked about $3 million. $1 million isn't necessarily all that much if you're trying to launch a dynamic new company that's going to employ a lot of people. So crowdfunding often isn't an attractive exemption for those kind of companies. Um, <clears throat> there are changes that can be made in the auditing requirements. The w way the statute was written, uh, a firm that raises over $500,000 is required to do a full audit. That can be, for firms that have an operating history, extremely expensive. A review would be satisfactory. And it's particularly, I think, uh, appropriate to consider that when you realize that neither Regulation A nor Regulation D requires 
audience. Uh, there are provisions relating to curation by the portals that probably need to be fixed. Um, that just came up in our discussions uh, before the event. Uh, basically, the Congress put in rules that prohibit curation by the porters, but also require the portals to uh, protect investors and how you can not do any curation but also protect investors is a congressionally created mystery that uh, the SEC made a reasonable attempt to resolve in the rule, but we really need to fix the rules. The uh, mandatory and ongoing disclosure requirements are problematic in some ways almost as burdensome as Regulation A. They're particularly problematic if we're ever going to see uh, regulation crowdfunding or Title III become important for debt financing. And one of our panelists, I think, is going to discuss that. Uh, the statute has 12 specific requirements. By the time the SEC got done with it, there are 25 specific disclosure requirements, uh, A through Y, and uh, they're mostly multi-part requirements, so it's really a lot more than 25. And the bottom line is that these requirements are nearly as burdensome as as those found in Regulation A, and, and really, I think, need to get rethought, particularly for debt securities. If Title III was amended with respect to companies issuing debt, that means that family-owned or closely-held businesses could use it as a means of, of borrowing money as opposed to issuing debt capital, and it could become much more like peer-to-peer -peer lending for individuals that the SEC is largely shut down. Now, one other thing I might mention is that Congressman McHenry uh, sent a letter to uh, <clears throat> SEC Chairman Clayton in May of last year, which also makes a number of suggestions, some of which are within the SEC's purview, but some of which uh, would require statutory changes. The uh, things he addresses include testing the water provisions, allowing special purpose vehicles uh, to use crowdfunding, uh, which has its advantages that we can potentially get into. Some of the 12G issues, uh, also raising the offering amount, uh, some changes with respect to accredited investors making investments in crowdfunding, and a number of other things. But for those of you who are interested, I'd recommend that you track down that letter by uh, uh, Congressman McHenry, who in some important level is the father of Title III crowdfunding. Now, let me just also mention one other thing, and then I'll introduce our panelists and, and quit talking. Um, and this is sort of a pet peeve of mine. You may notice that the uh, data from the SEC on all these subjects, whether it's crowdfunding or Regulation A or Regulation D, is old, comes out intermittently, and isn't, strictly speaking, comparable because they often don't use calendar years. Now, in every other field I work in, whether it's tax policy or labor law or health, uh, there's good data put out by the IRS, Statistics of Income, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the Census Bureau, whomever. In the securities law area, there isn't. Now, DARA has a large budget, over $70 million a year, over 150 employees, asking DARA to put together rudimentary basic information on how much money is raised by exemption type in a time series on an annual basis 
is something that needs to be done. It's something that has bipartisan support. Every commissioner I've ever talked to about this subject agrees that it should be done. It hasn't been done. It's time for it to be done because to no small degree, we're operating in a data-free environment or we have to rely on private sources which may or may not have the same access to the information. Now, let me introduce our panelists. We have four panelists. I think it's fair to say that uh, they represent some of the most knowledgeable people, if not the most knowledgeable people in the country on this subject matter. Um, they are Doug Alanoff, who's a member at Alanoff, Grossman and Scholl, Sarah Hanks, who's CEO of CrowdCheck, George Cook, who is the co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb Credit, uh, and Jonathan Cohen, uh, President and CEO of 2020 Gene Systems. They provide different perspectives on this issue, both in the sense that they play different roles in, or have uh, experience with different aspects of crowdfunding, but also, I think, uh, they're not necessarily totally uniform in their philosophical point of view. And I think it's important that we re-enter a discussion about how we can make this work better. Doug Elenoff is a corporate and securities attorney with a member and a member of Elenoff, Grossman, and Scholl. His experience is broad and deep. Most relevant for today's event, he's one of the country's most knowledgeable people with respect to Title III crowdfunding. His crowdfunding clients include funding portals, broker-dealers, technology solution providers, software developers, investors, and entrepreneurs. He is also the co-founder and a managing member of iDisclose. He has a JD from Fordham Law School and a bachelor, bachelor's from, uh, in political science from Vassar College. Sarah Hanks is a co-founder and CEO of CrowdCheck, one of the early pioneers in crowdfunding. She provides, or CrowdCheck provides, due diligence, disclosure, and compliance services uh, for online capital formation. She also served as co-chair of the SEC's Advisory Council on Small and Emerging Companies. She um, was previously general counsel of the Bipartisan Congressional Oversight Panel, the overseer of the Trouble Asset Relief Program, or TARP. Prior to that, she spent many years as a partner in the law firm of Clifford Chance. She has her law degree from Oxford and is a member of the New York and D.C. bars and a <clears throat> solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. George Cook is the co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb Credit, a Pittsburgh-based funding portal that allows locally-owned small businesses to borrow expansion capital from their own customers and community members. George is a sixth-generation community banker, and that has sparked his passion for community lending and local investing. His team saw a gap, and they're using regulation crowdfunding to help fill that gap. Uh, George has worked for TransUnion and Zest Finance. He is a graduate of George Washington University and the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Jonathan Cohen is the founder, president, and CEO of 2020 Gene Systems, a Rockville, Maryland-based company that develops and commercializes blood tests for early cancer detection. Under his leadership, 2020 has raised over $10 million in private placements under Regulation D., and at the end of 2017, raised the maximum $1.07 million under regulation crowdfunding <clears throat> using Indiegogo's equity crowdfunding platform. Last month, uh, they filed uh, their Form 1A. 
uh, and are going to uh, and are seeking to become qualified under Regulation A+. He has a wide variety of experience with different exemptions and the ways that entrepreneurs can raise capital. Um, <clears throat> he's also the founding director of the Small Biotechnology Business Coalition, uh, which has been active on a wide variety of policy issues. He has a Master's of Science in Biotechnology from Johns Hopkins and a law degree from American University. I'll hand it over to Doug at this point. Great, David. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, coordinating the panel on nearly the two-year anniversary of Reg CF uh, and continuing the conversation because, like all new programs, regulation crowdfund, uh, crowdfunding uh, has issues that it needs to deal with, but at the same time, I uh, believed and continue to believe that it is an important evolution in our securities laws that help entrepreneurs raise more money. Uh, I think that some of the statistics that David mentioned, I'm going to supplement so you have a, a more appreciation for what's happened in the last couple of years. I think when we launched RegCF two years ago, we had coming up on 20 RegCF platforms approved by FINRA, and as David pointed out, now we're up to 38 uh, there, in the two uh, in the two years, sixty five percent of all campaigns that have sought to raise capital have raised money. So that's a pretty good ratio of campaigns looking for funding and getting funding. Uh, in some cases, though, there are that's not such a great thing because they're raising small sums of money, maybe too small relative to their capital needs. And so it puts them in distress too quickly. And so that's an element that needs to be looked at industry-wide to make sure that the proper balance of making it easy for entrepreneurs to raise money is not overly exposing investors to uh, failure risk. Um, the typical raising of the money is in less than 90 days. Uh, and the, this information you can get off the Crowdfund Capital Advisory website. They seem to keep a fairly updated uh, data set, even though the government may not. Uh, and they're data scraping off of the 38 platforms and off the SEC Edgar system. Uh, in that two-year period, there have been 4,400 jobs that have been created. And since this was all under the title of the Jobs Act, it's important to keep note of the number of jobs that are being created. So for each campaign that's raising money, according to CCA, uh, a couple of jobs are, 2.7 jobs are being created. Uh, equally important is that the demographics of the entrepreneurs that are raising money may be different than the money that's being raised in the venture community, uh, which uh, really getting at women and minority are raising more money more readily and easily on the crowdfunding platforms. Uh, the distribution of deals is across the country. There are only a couple of states where uh, money for crowdfunding entrepreneurs haven't raised money. Uh, so I think that that's a good thing as well. That's probably tracking more friends and family sort of financing than venture money, which is really bi-coastal in Texas. Uh, but the aggregate numbers are there have been about 890 total campaigns. Year-over-year uh, -year growth has been uh, coming up on 200%. The number of closed campaigns is 700. Uh, remaining open is 189. And funded campaigns is 583 campaigns over that two-year period. There's been over $100 million that's actually been invested by investors in crowdfunding uh, entrepreneurs through these 38 crowdfunding platforms. When you look at the distribution of the 
number of campaigns, the actual number of crowdfunding platforms that has meaningful activity is fewer than 10. Uh, so that needs to be addressed. There needs to be more volumes going through the other platforms so they can have a viable business as well, since many of these crowdfunding platforms themselves are entrepreneurial businesses. And therefore, they have more money to d address some of the issues that I think Sarah is going to go into greater detail on in terms of doing better due diligence and really making sure that the on entrepreneurs are ready, ready for a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, the, the distribution of industries represented by the entrepreneurs is fairly broad. Uh, CCA has it down at 79, uh, but really the vast majority of money is going into software application, uh, beverage, and some other uh, industries. Uh, the point I think I'd like to address, and it kind of dovetails with my background in terms of giving perspective, I'm not dismayed at all by just raising $100 million in a two-year period. Uh, this is beta testing, a new way of raising money for entrepreneurship. And I said, uh, and I said at the time two years ago, that's an okay number, be, or I knew it would be an okay number, because it means that these crowdfunding platforms are figuring out the best way to move forward and help entrepreneurs raise money. First of all, they have to market to the entrepreneurial communities to say, listen, you should do your deals and raise your money on our platforms. That takes time and energy. Uh, the professionals involved, the lawyers, the accountants, uh, were not sense as uh, aware of the crowdfunding industry. That takes time to create that general awareness. Uh, our law firm has been involved in the uh, a variety of different programs. Uh, one's called SPACs, which is a 15-year program at this point. And we had a similar slow start. And now, uh, 15 years later, that program made our law firm second in the country in IPO amongst all law firms. So we've watched the evolution of programs go from small to large. And responsible people entrusted with a new program, as long as they're not hasty in making sure that they have to make money quickly but want to do things responsibly and slowly will make this program happen in a, in a, in a, uh, in a more responsible way. And therefore, some of the uh, changes that David mentioned about raising the cap from a million to three or five uh, will happen over time necessarily in my mind. Uh, and one of the reasons is they need to raise more money for these companies so they can have more money in fees so they can do a better job at what they are doing, not just make more money themselves. Uh, so there are things that need to be addressed, but I'm encouraged by the people who are running these platforms who I think are well-intentioned and trying to help entrepreneurs raise money and not fleece investors. I think the worst criticism you're going to hear today is that they could do uh, a, a, a better due diligence in making sure that the entrepreneurs are ready for raising the money that they're raising. Uh, the bigger picture from my point of view, because I think that I've – I've, I've listened to David for many years with his perspective, and I really do appreciate his involvement in the Heritage Foundation's involvement in the program. But the debate that I think we're watching play out in real time is you can have no regulation, and you're going to get the ICO market, which if you're not paying attention to it, in my mind, is a train wreck. And it's happening, and there are SEC investigations, and there are subpoenas. And these are legitimate entrepreneurs who just didn't know any better because they misread or misunderstood what a security is or isn't and what the exemptions available for the sale of those investment investments are. Whereas in crowdfunding, we have the beginnings of 
an ecosystem where there are licensed professionals that are helping entrepreneurs through a difficult series of nuanced rules. Are they getting it perfectly correct? No. Are they doing the best that they can with the resources they have? Yes. Could they be doing it better? Yes. But if I had my druthers, the last two years would have channeled the ICO uh, enthusiasm through these platforms, and then the ICOs would have been doing a better job with the compliance with the securities laws. The platforms would have been making more money, uh, and it all would have been helping entrepreneurship generally. So uh, my thesis is you can make the, some of the changes, which I'm fully supportive of, of that David mentioned, and then we'd have a more vibrant crowdfunding industry generally as opposed to what's going on uh, really unregulated in a completely irresponsible way in my mind, not, not only domestically but internationally with the sale of these ICOs for the formation of these distributed ledgers. So that's where I'll stop for the moment. Sarah. All right, so, so since, <clears throat> excuse me, since Doug didn't toot his own horn, I'm going to do it for him in answering one of uh, David's questions because David was raising the issue of the expense of going through this compliance. And this being America and us being entrepreneurs and all that, there are solutions to the expenses. And one of it's his company and one of it's my company. Uh, and we're incredibly cheap for the uh, services and the protection that is provided by the things that we do. Um, so I'm certainly going to push back on the expense there, David, because I, I think it is pretty cheap to get through that process. I'm pretty lawyer light, even though we are lawyers. Um, so I was going to just uh, address some of the things that we've seen. Uh, we are a um, full-service legal compliance and diligence um, operation. And so we get to see, um, we have seen firsthand hundreds of these uh, of these offerings um, some of the things that we've seen are um, the SEC actually being very helpful in giving interpretations, but by being helpful, causing other problems. And one of the things that I think we need to address is the fact that the SEC said, okay, you have to have your target, but once you've met your target, you can start taking the money. So you um, set a target of uh, $10,000, you set an oversubscription of uh, 1.07 million. And once you've hit the, the $10,000, you, the issuer, can start uh, taking the money. Now, that's great when you are a small company and you're constantly in need of funds. But the problem that that causes is the fact that things change over time. And so the information that the first people got, uh, who are now, now you've got shares, um, something happens during the course of the raise, which, um, as Doug says, can be over 90 days, uh, to the extent that that something was negative, and we see a lot of companies in financial distress, what do you do about the first investors when the second lot of investors are told, here is a thing that has changed its material, do you want to take your money back? So addressing the whole issue of rolling closings is something I think that we need to um, just pay more attention to. Um, the other thing uh, that the, uh, the staff's been great about is uh, taking the Jobs Act limitations on communications. And this is a problem in the statute, not in the rules. The statute says you can't do um, communications with respect to the terms. The SEC said there are four terms, you know, price and end date and what you're selling and 
overall offering size. And if you don't mention those, you can do all sorts of communications, but it's really stupid because you end up having these interviews where people are saying, well, company, you know, uh, 2020 gene system, so what are you raising? And um, you have to say, well, I can't tell you. You have to go to the funding portal to find that out. And that's something that's just an... Uh, there is the potential for multiple foot faults there. So it would be great if you didn't, if we could do something at the statutory level to let companies communicate. Because in order for investors to invest, they've still got to go and get the information on the portal. So that would be you know, no harm, no foul if you gave that information out. Um, I just want to flag a few areas where issues have arisen in the offerings that we've seen. One that we see a lot uh, is um, compliance with the requirements. Even though it's super easy to comply if you use, you know, our companies, disclosure is actually pretty uh, pretty poor in some cases. We did a study over the course of two years um, looking at 15 data points that we thought were important disclosures, and we measured compliance with them. I'll just give you sort of uh, three of that. Um, with respect to disclosing liquidity and how long uh, a runway the company has, 31% of the companies dis uh, complied. Uh, with respect to uh, discussion of financial performance, 57%. Um, and um, important things when financials actually can be quite old, 72% compliance with uh, updating um, who had filed between September and December of last year. Um, and 14%, 14% of those are not in good standing with their uh, state of incorporation, which means they can't actually sell. Not great. We've also seen um, securities being sold that didn't actually exist yet. So there is this need for the platforms to say, well, if you are selling Series A preferred, you should actually create your Series A preferred. You can't close unless you've actually uh, sold those, uh, created those. Um, then there's uh, in the bucket of, uh, oh, my goodness, things that we've seen. We do see some issues. Um, uh, my favorites um, include the guys who created a new company to sell the business they had already sold to somebody else. Um, the time that we uh, had to talk to the U.S. Attorney's Office to find out who was suing what, f who for what, with respect to transfer of IP assets for the company who was raising funds. Seen this several times, creation of new companies, um, trying to avoid um, when you've got a really hairy previous company. Um, there is There are some platforms out there who say, well, just form a new company. Don't work like that. Um, the assets have to be transferred. The IP has to be transferred. And you have to dis disclose financial statements of the predecessor company. So that is not a workaround. Uh, and then uh, the one that uh, actually distresses me most is where we've seen companies in financial distress, knowing they were in financial distress, not updating the investors and then taking the money, or updating the investors, not telling them it's material and taking the money. Uh, the uh, the one area that is sort of debatable whether, um, you know, what you would call it fraud or not, we do see a lot of pre-prototype companies um, who they haven't built the thing. It's not clear that they can build the thing. It's not clear they have the skill set to build the thing. The answer probably is full disclosure of all of those failures. Uh, but we do see um, that. Um, that We're working with a couple of deals uh, where the regulators are paying very close attention, shall I say, to that. 
So with respect to um, things that we'd like to see changed, um, I, I would like much more emphasis um, from the regulators on here are the circumstances in which something is material and you must update um, your investors, specifically financial distress. When your creditors are knocking at the door and saying, we are going to take the proceeds of your crowdfunding round, you're going to have to disclose that. Uh, and I would like to see standardized disclosure with respect to the terms on which the securities were offered. So if you're giving away the vote, um, that should be disclosed. If you are in the subscription agreement, uh, giving away your right to sue for misleading statements, need, a, you know, need that disclosed. Um, giving away your right to class actions, giving away your right to jury trial, or things, uh, undisclosed terms like forced repurchase of the securities under certain circumstances. If those things are in the subscription agreement, I really think there should be a little check the box of, you know, here are things that we are doing. Um, and then the final thing is I would like to see coordination between uh, the SEC and FINRA on some of the uh, more sort of um, uh, um, you know, general ideas, uh, the, the um, non-objective standards uh, where we have FINRA coming in and saying, you're going out with this valuation, you, sh uh, you the portal, should have uh, flagged this as fraudulent and our answer is portals are not required to do that. So things like that we would love to get some clarity on. Thank you, Sarah. George. Yeah, so hi. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Honeycomb Credit. Uh, we're a funding portal, registered uh, funding portal that allows locally owned small businesses to borrow from their own loyal customers in the community. Uh, so unlike a lot of the crowdfunding that we've talked about today, uh, it, it, which was largely equity crowdfunding, uh, which is fundamentally democratizing formation of capital and letting retail non-accredited investors uh, get in on early stage high growth startups, which is which is wonderful. I think it speaks to a lot of challenges that this country is facing, and I think uh, that democratization is is all a good thing. Uh, Honeycomb, on the other hand, though, is, is really focused on kind of the other side, the demand side of the capital markets. And so, from my community banking background, I, I started to observe that as community banks and credit unions were consolidating at a very rapid rate, uh, we lose one every single day in this country. Uh, there's starting to emerge a big donut hole in capital formation for small businesses. Uh, so if you're an entrepreneur trying to get started, there, there are good resources out there. There are nonprofits, there are SBAs, there are uh, SBDCs, I should say, there are uh, local nonprofit lenders, there are uh, economic development agencies, and in all of these communities that will help an entrepreneur uh, raise a small amount of capital to get started. And I'm talking more kind of a main street small business as opposed to a technology startup. And then kind of fast forward five or six years, and all of a sudden, uh, the business is profitable, it's doing well, it's stable. Uh, you can walk into your regional bank, you can walk into a national bank, and you're, you're able to get a loan. You can get an SBA loan or you can get a traditional bank loan, uh, and those businesses are well served. But everyone in the middle who needs relatively modest amounts of capital to, to kind of keep their business moving forward, uh, there's increasingly no good solution out there. Uh, and so we at Honeycomb saw regulation crowdfunding as, as a great way to address that. So with our business model, uh, local investors in the community can invest for as little as $100, participate in local businesses that they know and love while earning a competitive return. Businesses can, can get access to fair growth capital without giving up equity. 
and our communities uh, get to keep the money in the local community to, to kind of uh, keep that that growth local. Um, so you know, overall, I think I think uh, th- there's been some comments here that that people are a little bit. Uh, critical of, of the success of crowdfunding to date. Um, but it, keep in mind, it has only been two years. And uh, as an interesting data point, uh, from the time we submitted our first piece of paperwork to the SEC until we received our license from FINRA was seven months. Uh, and so that that's actually kind of on par with a lot of the other funding portals we talked to as well. So really that two years isn't even really two years. It's a little bit shorter time window than, than people make it out to be. Uh, and I think there's a lot of really exciting things happening. I think there's probably a, a lot of uh, great iterations of crowdfunding that, that are still kind of working their way through the, the compliance hurdles. And, and we're going to start to see uh, some of the existing funding portals really hit their growth curve while simultaneously seeing new iterations of crowdfunding coming out. Now, all of that being said, I do think there are opportunities that, that FINRA and the SEC can take and then also legislative bodies can take to uh, kind of accelerate that growth curve. Um, and when I think about it, uh, fr- from my company's perspective, it's really kind of issues on the investor side of the market and then issues on the issuer side of the market. Uh, and on the, the investor side of the market, uh, it, it's interesting. Right now, the, the calculation to determine how much an individual can invest is – let me see if I can get this right. You can, you can quote me. But it's the, the greater of $2,200 or the lesser of 10% of your income or net worth which is not an easy thing to articulate to, to an average retail investor. Uh, and so also one of the challenges we find there is there's people with very high net worth but low income or high uh, income and low net worth. You know, someone who just graduated from an MBA program or, or uh, just graduated from medical school who are relatively sophisticated investors who are looking to use regulation crowdfunding assets to build their net worth, uh, but they're effectively not able to do that. So I think that that's worth kind of reevaluating. Um, and also, as far as I know, uh, Reg CF assets are the only asset where accredited investors are capped on how much they can invest annually. Uh, and that's capped at $107,000 a year. So from our perspective, there are investors out there who are trying to put money to work in Main Street, Middle America, uh, and they're being prevented from doing that. And, and it's sort of a shame. And, and I, th- I know there's some considerations right now about kind of reevaluating uh, some terms around accreditation and certainly uh, w- would welcome those conversations. Uh, then on the issuer side, um, I think because, uh, as I said earlier, most of the other funding portals think about uh, think about regulation crowdfunding from an equity perspective. I think the regulators also really think about regulation crowdfunding from an equity perspective. Uh, and, and there is a very big difference between a high-growth tech startup raising a million dollars via equity and an organic farm who is raising $25,000 via debt to buy a greenhouse. Uh, and that's the type of business I'm working with. Uh, and they're largely required to fill out the same paperwork as the high-growth tech company. They're largely uh, required to do the same filings. Uh, and that can be very daunting. And so I think uh, a, a close look at who could really benefit from regulation crowdfunding and, and making sure that we are uh, kind of keeping in, uh, keeping in mind uh, what uh, the needs of some of these smaller, less sophisticated uh, issuers are. I, I, the people I'm working with primarily don't know what the Securities and Exchange Commission is, much less know how to fill out their paperwork. Uh, so, uh, you know, trying to keep that in mind as, as we move forward with Rake CF. Um, overall, though, uh, you know, I, I'm 
an optimist on Rakecf. I think this is just the beginning. I think it's going to be uh, a really powerful tool to get capital to, to where it's needed most in, in middle America. Uh, and uh, excited to be to be working with people like the ones on the stage here to, to make that a reality. Thank you. Um, and uh, Jonathan, why don't you tell us about your experiences as an entrepreneur seeking to raise capital? Thank you, David. Uh, Jonathan Cohen, President and CEO of 2020 Gene Systems based in Rockville, Maryland. We're focused on um, early cancer detection. Um, our experience at the end of last year with RegCF was very positive. I, in, in short, I think the, the program by and large worked for its intended purpose. I think it worked for us. And I think it works very well for the investors and has a number of built-in protections for investors that in some ways don't even exist in the private placement world. Now, let me elaborate. But at the begin at the outset, let me explain a little bit about, about why we went down this road because it's a little bit unusual. We're not, we're not, we were not the typical issuer on the Reg A platform. I'm sorry, the Reg CF platforms uh, for the following reasons. First of all, we our company's been around for a while. We're not a true startup based on time. Uh, and we had raised at least 10 million, uh, from private, pl private placements, including a, a, a large amount of which came from, uh, the, the largest, uh, angel investor network in, in the United States, Koretsu Forum. We have a major Chinese, very large Chinese health insurance company as a shareholder. So why would we pursue, uh, this small, you know, program where we could only raise up to a little over a million dollars, which we did. And we were one of a handful of companies that reached that goal. Um, really for, for two, for three reasons. Still, a million dollars is certainly nothing to sneeze at, and so it is, it is capital. That was not the most important reason. There really are two other reasons that we did it. One is that because we have, we had already at the time about 200 or so shareholders, um, some of which had been in for seven or eight years, uh, we wanted to look for some pathway to liquidity for them, and at some point, the public markets could be that pathway. And we, we were looking at Reg A, which upon qualification you can become a publicly traded company. Um, we, rather than testing the waters in Reg A, which is in some ways hypothetical since you don't, they, you don't actually close the, the deal, we felt that, and, and the people that advised us felt that, there, that uh, crowdfunding would be a better way to actually see how does our story play with, you know, how, how does it resonate with the retail investor community. So that was, uh, this was for, for some re in some respects, a stepping stone for us, and, and it worked very well in that regard. But the other reason, and this is, I think, the, the most important thing about crowdfunding, is that it allows you to simultaneously raise capital but also build awareness and, 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 and in essence, generate customers, either current customers if you have a product on the market or future customers if you are – you know, anticipating a product in the not too distant future. So in our case, we are on the cusp of launching the first multi-cancer blood test in the United States, one tube of blood screening for multiple cancers. And it's a consumer self-pay. So there's not something that's going to be billed by uh, insurance companies or Medicare for the foreseeable future. So it was very important for us to get to gauge uh, interest from the uh, the people that would be consumers. Cancer doesn't care about your net worth. Or, or the value of your home, right? You know, or, or your income. So, so we wanted to, 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 to see what, um, what the interest level was. And, and in that regard, we offered what they call perk. So people that invested above a certain threshold 
got a voucher for this product, which we now call OneTest. That worked phenomenally well. So we had about 2,000 investors, of which about half, about a 1,000 invested to the level to get that voucher. And in my experiences with this, uh, I learned a lot of things from actually doing this. And, and I think there's a, a, a lot of myths, particularly here in Washington, about retail investors, about non-accredited investors. And one of them that they're somehow less sophisticated than accredited investors. And I've worked with a lot with both. I, I don't see a shred of evidence that they are in any way less sophisticated. And I base that on a couple of, of facts. First of all, um, one of the things that's very interesting about doing a crowdfunding campaign that doesn't exist in the private placement realm is the is the the internet aspect of of, of posting it on a platform and the open Q and A that comes from that. So people can post what you know, much like a lot of internet things, you can post questions and there's and and we as the management team has has uh, then goes ahead and answers that. And that that is all out there in the public. And the questions that we got were as relevant and sophisticated as I have gotten from the top venture capital or the top uh, corporate investors that I've come across. Because after all, these people are in all walks of life. They, they may be doctors and they may be nurses, lawyers, accountants, people that have had cancer. And, and so, so th- th- I found that, that, that that process was, was not, was very good for the investor because they could all read. Uh, the Q&A from other people. So that, that's the essence of crowdfunding, right? The ability to learn from others. Uh, interesting, last week I was at a very high level diagnostics industry meeting not far from here and I had a reason to introduce myself in a Q&A session and shortly thereafter somebody came over to me and said, uh, Jonathan, hi, I'm a shareholder of your company. This was a senior executive at one of the top diagnostics companies in the country had invested through the portal. So a lot of the people, I don't know many of these 2,000 people. I may never meet them, but uh, it, it would be wrong to assume that they, that somehow these people are less, not only less sophisticated, but that they care less about their $500 than a wealthy investor cares about their $50,000 investors. I, I don't think that's true. So I, th- I think it's, there's an enormous appetite. I know there's an enormous appetite by the American public to be able, for the first time, to invest in a pre-IPO high-growth company, to have an alternative to the stock market, or or to uh, 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 or to bank you know uh, bank interest rates, and and uh, as evidence of that, there's a a, a respected um, um, newsletter that actually wrote a very favorable recommendation about our company in the last three or four days of our campaign, and and we got a huge surge. Of interest, so almost uh, two thirds of our of our 1.07 million came in the last three or four days of the campaign. Quite remarkable. This particular newsletter gets uh, 200 has been getting about 200 paid subscribers a day from people that are paying a small amount, less than fifty dollars, to get the information. So it's growing. There, there's a growing appetite by the the American public. As there is in their counterparts in Europe, by the way, in, in their, England is ahead of us in crowdfunding. When I was in England last month, I met with Crowdcube, which was the first and the, the largest equity crowdfunding um, portal in the world. They are growing like gangbusters. It is showing, and they have lower regulatory thresholds in, in the United Kingdom than we do. Less regulatory burden. They are growing in leaps and bounds. I met with the, the largest and the second largest, which is Cedars. So this works. Uh, yes, there's room for improvement. I'll just just offer a couple suggestions. I do think the maximum should be raised 
three million feels about right to me. I think that should be. And there's too big a gap, regulatory burden gap, from our experience. Now that we're, you know, we're, we're in the midst of the uh, Reg A, which is basically equity crowdfunding on steroids, if you will. Uh, the, the audit requirements in Reg A are extraordinarily burdensome, and I believe should be lightened. I think we should be asked to be do a, do a financial review, not a full audit, up until raising five million. Uh, the audit costs are simply too high, particularly for companies like in the life science field where you have a lot of shareholders, a lot of warrants and, and options and things like that. So I think I think a, a, a an on ramp a short. Uh, Equal, uh, I would have less, I would, I would do reg, reg CF up to three million and then allow issuers to, to qualify under, under regulation A without the full audit until they raise five million, at which point then the full audit. And reviews are, they're not the full audit, but you know, I think reviews should, if you have a reputable, uh, accounting firm, compliant accounting firm, will, should pick up on, on many of the things that were mentioned regarding debt and things like that, so to get all of that information out there to disclose. So those are my suggestions. All right. Uh, why don't we move to audience questions? I know there are some folks here who probably have some good questions. Uh, I would ask if you could identify, say your name, identify your institutional affiliation um, question. Uh, thank you. My name is Paul Jossie. I run my own law firm, and I'm about to take my first company on to Reg CF within either next week or the week after. So uh, thank you for, for having me uh, or, or for having this discussion because it's one of the few I've, I've seen in Washington, D.C. Um, and, and thank you for talking about some of these ridiculous rules because there are a lot of them here. And um, uh, I, I certainly believe they are overly burdensome. And thank you for talking about the solicitation rules, because um, I think these are some of the uh, most ridiculous of the ridiculous 714 pages of when the SEC did their their big uh, exp, uh, explanation of this. And so um, uh, I just, you know, we talked about uh, some of the fixes that should be made. Is there any intel about any of these fixes that are going to be made? Um, uh, you know, is Congress going to actually do some of this stuff instead of, um, you know, us having panels and, and talking about what should be done to make this better? Thank you. I might take that on and then panelists. The short answer is right now there's some people on the Hill thinking about it. Uh, I think the uh, sort of consensus up until quite recently was let's see how it works. Um, and now because we have a little bit of, uh, experience with how it works, uh, there's an interest in reevaluating some of, of these rules. Uh, but I wouldn't say there's a groundswell of congressional interest in reforming Title III at this point. Uh, that's part of the point of this is to evaluate where we are, uh, how it's working out. Uh, and what changes are appropriate and try to develop a consensus around a Title III reform agenda. And, uh, but it's going to be a little while, I think. So, guys. Yeah. So, I guess one, one thing to say, um, so if, an anecdote on the solicitation piece. So not, not only is it very difficult for the company to decide what they can communicate and not, 
uh, we found that the companies that raise on our platform generate a lot of media buzz. Uh, and any reporter doing their due diligence will go to the site and, and pull down a couple of the, the terms of the deal, which then prohibits the issuer from sharing that news article. So they're getting great media buzz and they're not able to take advantage of it, which is really unfortunate. So uh, definitely share your pain points there. Um, in, in terms of, I, I know very little about the legislative side. Um, I was just meeting with some folks over at the SEC though, and they are conducting their first look back analysis right now and, and kind of evaluating some of the rules that they've decided. Now that's going to be a very long process. It's going to go into next year. Um, but they are seriously evaluating things, and they, they want to hear people's input that, that have used uh, crowdfunding. So they, they are looking at it. Yeah, and we have a, a, a new commission, in effect. So I think the commission will eventually look at this seriously. But I doubt it's – well, I know for a fact it's not at the top of their list. Uh, I, if I may, I just want to commend you as an entrepreneur for taking the time to come down – and, and, and voice your concerns. And, and I, there frankly are too few of, of us. Um, I, a couple of years ago, I went to an SEC small business forum. I didn't see us other than myself. I didn't meet a single small business person, a hundred percent lawyers and service providers. And that is in no way to disrespect. Uh, I'm, I'm a recovered lawyer turned entrepreneur. Um, and, and the extraordinarily important work that is done by, by lawyers and people on this panel and the time that they volunteer and put in. Uh, but 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 members of Congress in particular need to hear from you and your peers. And if there are aspects of the program and rules that you think are silly or overly burdensome, you've got to communicate those to, to your member of Congress. And then they will prioritize it if they hear from you. And, and to the extent that you can, the, the, you know, the, there's not a lot of opportunity for the SEC to hear directly from the entrepreneurial community. But but to the extent that you can, you should. Try to get those communicated. But members of Congress are open. And, and I think that is what's really needed. We need to get more CEOs and others uh, to come down because we are the ones that have to pay for those audits. And we have to pay the legal bills. And they're substantial. And, 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 and I don't think a lot of the things that come from these requirements are terribly enlightening for our shareholders. It's not what they – they want us putting our time and money on executing our business plan at the end of the day. That's why they invested. They didn't invest for more disclosure. 99% of them don't read these things anyways. They want us to get our products to market and then to succeed so that their $500 or their $1,000 is $10,000 or $20,000. And if they're also interested in, in your mission, the disease that you might be working on or the product you're trying to bring to market can eventually get to market and can help them. So I think you, you, we need more of you, and you should continue to speak out. And the thing that I, that I would add is that if you look at the comments of regulators pre uh, pre uh, going live with Title Three red crowdfunding, really going back the four years prior to that that it took to make that all happen, uh, you would have thought it would be an avalanche of litigation. And I think the good news, we're not talking about that at the moment. And that gives Congress and the regulators the uh, breathing room that they need to reflect on how to improve those things that are legitimate criticisms or concerns to make it a better program. Uh, there were folks down at uh, the SEC and in Congress within months after we went live pushing the agenda of increasing the cap, looking for SPVs, doing some of the things that Sarah is talking about, and it was just too early. Now we have enough experience 
Uh, they are not getting flooded with phone calls, regulators in particular, with problems the way they are with the ICO market. Have I said that yet? Um, and I think that that's going to give us a much better opportunity, whether it's now or relatively soon, to go back and get some of the improvements, as is true with a lot of the other programs that I've been involved with. So I, I do commend the entrepreneurs who take this seriously the way we're hearing up here as well as the platforms to make sure that the ecosystem is doing largely what it was intended to do from a regulatory point of view, even though you, you can scale some of it back and take an enlightened perspective the way would, that was just suggested because investors really do just care about investing in interesting opportunities and not reading the disclosure, although as a, uh, as a society we want that disclosure in my mind. Uh, to protect people if they want to be protected. So I think it's it's still early, but I think it's becoming timely to improve. Other questions? Hi. I'm Eagles uh, Milbergs. I'm co-founder of a nonprofit in Seattle uh, that's helping water entrepreneurs uh, get off the ground. I have two questions. One is uh, how suitable is this form of financing for prototyping, many of the entrepreneurs that we deal with uh, come along with um, great concepts, but they need to prototype, test, validate, you know, their technology before they can take it off into the market and scale. Uh, and second question deals with, uh, is this mechanism useful for a form of blended financing with philanthropy, particularly for companies that kind of have a social impact mission and companies that uh, uh, big philanthropies are interested in supporting. But can that be blended? I'm just wondering about the blended aspect of using this tool. So actually, if you look to Singapore, Singapore is into uh, what I call hydropreneurship as well. and Big time, exactly. And they've used it very successfully. So I think you can look to those markets even though I wouldn't say that that's a big part of uh, what's being done in Reg CF, there's no reason that it couldn't be. Uh, so I think that that's an indicator. And then I think Sarah addressed a little bit before appropriately is that if you're going to finance a prototype opportunity, you just need to make sure that you're advising investors about the actual status of that as an opportunity, that the entrepreneur may never have ever done this before, that this is an early stage investment, your likelihood of loss is much greater. Uh, have they actually thought through those aspects of developing the technology so that they can price it out and that they're raising enough money to actually be able to accomplish the tasks that they think that they're going to do? Things like that, but is it uh, available? Yes. Uh, there are no water-specific crowdfunding platforms, although I do think looking to the future, like George is doing, where he's uh, doing something very specific, I think you will see uh, a platform devoted to just water technologies. It's probably under renewables now generally, but, yeah, I think it works. And then from hybrid, I'll let Sarah. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, there's no reason that you can't use crowdfunding to do some um, some combination of – uh, you invest X, some of it goes towards uh, actually uh, a, an investment, an equity investment, and some of it specifically is, and we are using this to promote our other objectives. And there's several different ways of doing it, selling the, the shares for more than they are, quote, worth, um, or giving the social benefit as a perk. 
Now you get a share and you get this warm and fuzzy feeling from, from this. So no reason you can't do that. Yeah, I would, oh, go ahead, sir. I, w- I would just echo that. I, th- I think that one, one of the advantages to, of, to raising money from individuals versus institutions like a venture capital firm is that individuals often have mixed motives. Uh, almost always they want a good return on investment, but, but all, equally angels and, and crowd investors invet, invest for things they care about. It could be an environmental technology or, or, or whatnot. So, and that's their, that's certainly their right. So, um, I, I predict, uh, although there have not been many life science firms, which is the field that I'm in, that have used crowdfunding, uh, I think it, over time it will be a very powerful tool, uh, as you have affinity groups that organize around perhaps certain diseases, whether they're large disease areas like Alzheimer's or orphan diseases. And and um, I think that's going to be a very powerful tool. And the, the handful of life science firms, and, and a few followed us, and perhaps we may have, you know, maybe since we did well with it, we may have blazed the path for a couple others, and I've heard from a few others, uh, have actually done quite well. Uh, I think my, as I've looked at the crowdfunding, I haven't looked at the, the statistics, but just looking at the platforms that were up there when we were there, there's an oversupply of lifestyle companies. T- yeah, beer and tons of breweries and distilleries. I mean, just restaurants. Beer companies. And and you, you know, there's investors have to ask themselves, how likely is that brewery going to be a billion dollar company? So in any event, I think we part of the reasons we did well is we were a stark contrast. To a lot of these, you know, people producing movies and and, and restaurateurs and things like that. So, uh, so yes, I, I hope that that becomes increasingly uh, how, why people, why the American public starts to leverage crowdfunding to sort of do well and do good. Well, I, I just would would mention more and more states are allowing firms to explicitly become what's called benefit corporations or benefit LLCs and explicitly have a dual purpose, one of which is profitability for the shareholders. The other is some social mention, uh, social uh, objective. And I think that's very constructive, and in, as long as it's fully disclosed, uh, uh, laudatory. So uh, I hope to see more of that going on as well. Any, any other questions? All right. Well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, this uh, event will be available on our website probably in, within the next 24 hours. Uh, thanks again. Thanks.